So page 61 in the small print and 77 of the large print. Exodus 20, and this is the word of God. And God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Amen. And we thank God this morning for his word. A lot as many years ago now, I will never ever forget my years that I spent as an assistant minister up in the port of Larne. Larne is a very special place. It might get a bad rep from those who haven't spent much time in it. But it is a wonderful place and I love my time at Gardenmore and I often think about it and remember it fondly. If, however, I could change one thing about Gardenmore, it would be its stained glass windows. If you've ever been to the church in Gardenmore, you sit and the pulpit is not central in Gardenmore, it's over yonder, it's over in that sort of wall there. But if you were in Gardenmore right now, looking up this way, you would see these wonderfully beautiful stained glass windows up here somewhere of two angels. And there are these angels and their little children running about and one of the angels is holding a wee baby uh, and the glass is broken. It looks almost like one of the babies has been shot in the arm, something like that. I don't know if they never quite got around to fixing that. But there are these wonderful big stained glass windows that have been there since the early 1900s. And whilst they are beautiful and whilst I appreciate them, I was never terribly sure what we were trying to say with those windows. 
I couldn't see any mention of Christ in them. Uh, I couldn't see any uh, point of them being there other than decoration. And the fact that these big angels were displayed and were front and center, I never quite understood them. Now, if they were off in another corner of the church, if they were hidden away in a wee alcove somewhere and you didn't see them that often, then maybe I wouldn't have just been as thick-necked about it, but they were front and center every single week. They were right there. They were what you looked at. They were your attention. They were your gaze. That was what it was all about. And for me, that's a difficulty. It's a problem. And it's a problem not just because I don't like stained glass windows. I do. I do. I like these ones. They're nice enough. But it's a problem because of what God's Word says. We've read the Ten Commandments there this morning. Uh, you will know them probably off by heart since you are a wee lad or a wee lassie. But when we come to verse 4 in the commandments, we're told that we shall not make for ourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And the problem with these images is that often we would bow down and worship them. And the Lord says in verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, don't get me wrong, in my three and a half years in Gardenmore, I never once saw anybody bowing down and worshipping those big stained glass windows. Not once. But the problem is this. It's not just in churches, it is in society. There was a time, and not so long ago, when there were t-shirts going about with a sort of cartoon image of Christ on them and the words, Jesus is my homeboy. Today, I don't have any tattoos. That is a promise. There are no tattoos on this fine specimen up before you, but I'm always intrigued when I'm in Dobies or somewhere and you see tattoos on those serving you. And I've lost count how many times I've seen an image of Jesus in somebody's arm and a cross and a picture of the Lord. There are films that depict Jesus. There are necklaces, aren't there? We see little crosses and little image of Jesus on them. There are statues all over the place. And it's all of this that the reformers 500-odd years ago were making an effort to rid the church of. There's a fancy word to describe it. They were iconoclasts. I'll not spell it for you because, frankly, I'm not terribly sure how to spell it. But they were men in the Reformation who realized the truth of God's word and understood that images are not helpful for the church of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're paying attention this morning, and if you've ever paid attention in this church or other Presbyterian churches, you will see that we struggle with that. I'm not going to fill in the blank there, but probably if you're looking up this way, you see how we struggle with it. We've always wanted images. We're men and women who much prefer to see something, something visible and, and something tangible. And so when the reformers all those years ago started to take the images out of churches, and in some cases they would remove these images and burn them just outside the church and they were causing all this difficulty, you and I might think, well, it seems petty or, or unimportant whether or not other big issues that they had to discuss. And of course there were. Out of the Reformation came these passions for Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to God alone the glory. We know those things. We have them on the wall of our church. But another concern was this desire in the church at the time to represent Christ physically, to represent him as Gardmore represented those big angels, to put him on a wall, to put him on a, a cross somewhere, to make him look full of torment and anguish, to put him in a graveyard. 
And that was then, and it still exists today. And yet God's word says that we are to not make for ourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. See, the commandments have not been superseded. We speak in the Reformed Church of the three distinctions of the law. There's the civic law, the law that governed Israel as she was the nation state all those years ago. Christ has done away with that. Today, the church knows no borders, no boundaries. It is all across the world. And so the civic law has been fulfilled by Christ. There's also the ceremonial law. It's the law that spoke to the Israelites about how they were to worship and how they were to sacrifice. Today, we don't have little lambs brought up to the front of the church. Today, I don't have a big knife to kill those lambs on your behalf. I'm sure you're glad of that, just as I am. The ceremonial law has been fulfilled by Christ. As we've already read in our service, he is in the order of Melchizedek. He is our great high priest. He stands over the household of God, and therefore, the ceremonial law is gone. But when we speak of the Ten Commandments, we speak of God's moral law. And it is still in force. I'm sure when you're speaking to your grandchildren, you teach them. They don't steal. You're not to do that. I'm sure if you're barging your children, you will say, don't you speak to your mother or father like that. We, we still honor our parents. And so if we still do those things, we should still strive to not make any idols for ourselves. And you think, well, Scott, that's okay. We, we're Ulster Protestants. We're Presbyterians. We don't do idols. There's nothing carved in my house. I've never made a, a little image of Jesus. There's nothing like that in me. But, but this law goes beyond just those things of wood and stone. We are to not imagine Christ in our image. We are not to turn him into something that we wish he would be. We are to look to God's word. We are to come to the sacraments. That is where we give by God our design and our impression of Jesus. See, the problem today perhaps doesn't feel like a big one. But in this Reformation Sunday, I am sure you, like me, are often someone who creates idols for himself where none should exist. See, it wouldn't be uh, an issue uh, if we weren't as sinful as we are. It wouldn't be something that would trouble us if our hearts weren't as turned away from God as they are. But one of the great reformers, John Calvin, made it clear and made a famous comment about it. And he said that our hearts are idol factories, constantly churning out idols in which we can worship. God's word here makes it clear there shall be no room in our lives for idols. Carved images or anything like that, we shall not bow down to them, says God in verse 5, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And when we read jealousy, we immediately think of a negative thing. We, we think that God is this vengeful, wrathful, jealous God, always watching and waiting for us to slip up. But that's not the meaning of the word. The Lord is a jealous God in this respect. Philip Reichen writes this. He is a holy, jealous God. He is a God who displays this holy jealousy. And a holy jealousy is one that guards someone's rightful possession. God's commitment to us is total. His love is exclusive. It is passionate. It is intense. In a word, it is jealous. God knows who we are. He has stepped into history to save us. Before we loved him, he loved us. It is by grace that we have been saved. We know these things. And any Sunday in the year, and especially in Reformation Sunday, we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if we therefore bear the name Christian, 
then we hear these words that we are not to make any idols, we're not to make any false images, for our God is a jealous God. He does not accept worship that we also give to an idol, whether it is carved in the image of Christ or whether it is an idol of our own making in our own hearts. And today, my friends, I don't want you to be uh, unsure of what I'm talking about here. There's a church I go to when I'm on holidays called Ballywillan. And they don't have two big angels behind the pulpit, but they have an image of Christ. And there he is uh, behind the pulpit, and uh, there are birds and all sorts, and a little picture of the old church down in the corner. It is really a beautiful stained glass window, but it does not help us. See, we do not know what Jesus looked like, but even as I say that, perhaps in your head you've got an image of him. As we think of Jesus, we think of the traditional image that we have seen for many generations. He will be uh, tall with a beard and long hair down to his shoulder, and his skin color usually will be white, like me or like you. But the scriptures don't tell us any of that. The scriptures do not speak about the Lord's facial hair. They do speak about his skin color, but he was almost certainly not white. He was from the Middle East. And the scriptures do mention, according to Paul, that it is a shameful thing for a man to have long hair, so almost certainly the Lord Jesus' hair was not down to his shoulders. But the problem isn't just that we can't image him properly. The problem is that when we make an idol, when we seek to make an image of Christ, we rob Jesus of his divinity. We take away from him something that should never be removed. You see, today we proclaim that Jesus is the God-man. We believe that Jesus is fully God, fully man, and yet without sin. This is what we confess about Christ. This is what we believe about Christ. And so to remove Jesus' humanity from him would be to turn him into something that he is not. And to remove his divinity from him would be to turn him into something that he is not. And either way, whatever road we go in that, we are falling into sin and we are robbing Christ of who he is. And so any image of Jesus that has ever been made, no matter how beautiful, no matter how accurate we might think, no matter how revered it is in art or in history, whatever image we have ever made of him, well, it is sin. It should be excluded from our lives and excluded from our worship. The Lord says, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any other likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. Certainly today we wouldn't want to treat our mother and father badly, I would imagine. And today probably you're not going to go down to the shop and do a little bit of shoplifting, I would imagine. And so why then today are we sometimes content to rob Christ of that which is his? Any image that we've ever seen robs Jesus of his divinity. And yet scripture is absolutely clear about who this Jesus is. In John 14, verses 7 to 11, Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me, says Jesus, has seen the Father. Here is Christ. The image of the invisible God. Here is Jesus, fully God and fully man. To put him on a poster, 
to put him on a tattoo, to put him in a bit of stained glass. We would never do him justice. And we rob of him his divinity because how can we ever draw a picture of Christ as he truly is? Paul says this about Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in Jesus, says Paul, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Here is Jesus. Here is what the word of God says about Christ. And therefore any images of him, any attempt on our part to to put him in the print or in the paint or in the sculpture or in the film, any attempt to do that will always fall short. How can we possibly ever make something that shows how Christ is the image of the invisible God? How can we ever possibly imagine something that would show that Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together? How could we ever do this? How could we ever fully do justice who our Jesus is. And so friends, again, I suspect you're not out in your garage in your little art studio churning out images of Jesus. But we see them all around, don't we? All the time. And and even verbal images. People talk about Jesus and and assign to him things that, that the scriptures do not say. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, we say, but we never mention that Christ comes and will come in judgment. We talk about Jesus in our own image. We imagine him as we hope that he is. Rarely ever going to the scriptures to figure out what God says about his very own son. And so to make any image of God, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit is a sin. And it was this that drove the reformers to take those statues and all of those other bits and pieces out to the front of the church to burn them. And you'll be glad to hear today that I'm not planning to do that. I have sparklers in my boot, but that is for another purpose. But today as we think on this and seek to apply this to our lives, and I think the natural uh, application comes to our hearts and to a simple question about who or what our idols are. You see, many of us today will have made an image of wealth and happiness and prosperity. Many of us today are so, so pleased at the the size of our bank account. Many of us today do not look to Christ alone as he is revealed in his word and in his sacraments as our only hope, but instead we replace him with our reputation, with our families, with whatever it might be, whatever idol it is that is on your throne under the spirit of this commandment in Exodus chapter 20, it must go. Calvin, again, tells us our hearts are idol factories. And a more recent commentator by the name of John Frame goes further when we speak about idols. He says, idols are lies. 
not because God is invisible or cannot be pictured, but because idols fail to picture what is most important about him. His personality, his ability to see, hear, speak, and interact with his creatures. And without personality, says John Frame, God cannot judge. Good news for unbelieving hedonists, but bad news for the universe. And without personality, God cannot love. Bad news for everybody. But idols, says John Frame, are liars. Idols will always lead us down the wrong path. And so if our idol today is that little good luck charm Jesus that hangs in our car, if our idol today is that little Bible verse that we've got written on our arm in ink that will last until it looks like a big blob when we're 90, if our idols are in our bank account, in our homes, whatever they may be, they must fall. But you see, my friends, today we have not been left without good news. We have not been left to try and figure out God and, and try to carve him or image him or paint him. Today, as men and women of faith, as the apostle says in 2 Corinthians 5, we walk by faith, not by sight. And that is why the reformers were so keen for us to remember that it is not by going to a pilgrimage to Rome to do some good things that will see us saved. It's not by going and, and touching the toe of St. Peter somewhere that will see us saved. It's not by pilgrimage up some mountain to, to, to stand before an old rugged cross with an image of Christ on it that will see us saved. None of those things are necessary. Those idols must fall. Instead, we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by that receiving and resting in Christ as he is offered in the gospel. But even as I say that, many of us would much prefer sight. We prefer tangible things. We prefer to be able to, to touch and to see and to taste. You will know my great passion for the Titanic, and there was a time that the Titanic was lost. It sank, and for all most of the last century, nobody knew where it was. And so that led to speculation. What if it sank in one piece? What if it sank and it was actually in good shape? Could it be raised up? Could we see it again? Would it, would it be able to be brought back to port? Could it become some sort of tourist uh, attraction? We wanted to see. We wanted to touch. We wanted to taste. That's who we are naturally as humans. But today, we walk by faith and not by sight. And so today I do not have an image of Christ here to show you. Today I have not a picture of Jesus to put up on the screen to show you. To do that would be a sin. Today I have not an image of God that I've got some uh, smart points to tell you about it to help you in your relationship with Jesus. Not at all. Today our worship is simple. And today we do not come seeking a sign. Seeking some magic trick at the front. Today, I will not be turning this bread and wine into the actual body and blood of Jesus. We do not hold to that. And that is not the sign we look for. But a sign has been given to us. And today, just as this church is empty of images of Christ, so too the Lord's tomb is empty of him. Long ago in Matthew 12... Some scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, Teacher, we wish to see a sign. But Jesus answered them, 
An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What was Jesus talking about here? He was talking about the wonderful truth that he has given us a sign. The only sign we need. We do not need idols of wood or stone. Or to try and imagine as best we can what Jesus looked like. Or or to have lucky charms in our back pocket just in case Christ has given us a sign. And the sign is the sign of Jonah. That just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish and rose again. So too Jesus was in the belly of the earth. Crucified and buried for our sake but alive forevermore and at the right hand of the Father. Friends, here is our sign today. And we cannot see it. And I know some of you have been to Israel, and I know some of you will have gone to the place where they believe the Lord's tomb was, but we just guess at that. We cannot be sure of any of that. We cannot see these things today, but we believe them. We believe them because God has told us them in his word. We believe them because we have received the gift of the Holy Spirit who has assured us of these things in our hearts. We believe the truth of Jesus, that he is crucified and raised and coming back, and we need no false images of him to assure us. You see, you and I are men and women who are counted as blessed. Jesus once said that doubting Thomas, Thomas You have believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Friends, we do not have signs today. We do not have pictures or images. These things are ruled out for us by a holy God. He knows what we are like and he knows that these things would become a snare to us. He knows that these things often cause our hearts to run after them. How many of you, for example, shouted at your children because in your brand new car, one of them spilled a little bit of milkshake? Suddenly you lost it and you were really, really cross. And why? Because we love stuff, things, tangible items that that we hold on tightly. The Lord knows what we are like and so commands us to have no signs, no statues, no images. But he has given us enough. Today the tomb is empty and the scriptures tell us of that. Today in word and in sacrament, God speaks to us and shows us who he is. And today as we have heard the word of God preached and soon we'll sit around the table, then what God has given us is utterly sufficient. I was talking to John about this during the week. Uh, He and I were just going back and forward about the implications of this and, and what this looks like. And he said something to me in a text yesterday that I just thought summed it up. He said, Scott, simple worship is a beautiful thing. Simple worship is a beautiful thing. And why, said young Johnny Brogan? Because it reflects the simplicity of our God. 
what do we mean by God's simplicity? Well, it's not that he is some simple little being somewhere who one and one makes two. That's not it. We call God simple because he is exactly what he is. He never became powerful. He has always been powerful. He never became wise. He has always been wise. Our God is a simple God. And simple worship and simple faith is a beautiful thing. And so friends, today I ask you in your own life, where are your idols? Where are the images that you have raised which for many years now have taken Christ's place? Where are the images of God that you have erected in your life usually in your heart, but maybe somewhere else. An image that that makes you so secure and so safe, but it is not the God who we meet in the Scriptures. Where are these idols that have taken the place of Jesus? Friends, as you identify them today, and as you take them outside and set fire to them like the Reformers did all those years ago, and as you're free from a life that is desperately looking for the bones of the saints or or a part of the actual cross at Calvary and all that other stuff that Christians often run after. Well, as we get rid of those idols, what do we replace them with? Simple faith, resting in Christ alone as he is offered in the gospel. And simple worship that places the emphasis not on images, not on performance, but on Christ and his words and the sacraments that he has given us. Friends, today I am reminded of brothers and sisters somewhere in this world. I heard a long time ago about the persecuted church and where that church was, I don't know. The person telling us about this church couldn't tell us where it was for the sake of the safety of these believers. We don't have their names We don't have uh, any updates on how they're doing to this day, but there are parts of this world where worship is an incredibly dangerous thing. And so how did those believers worship? Well, they would meet in a secret location. They would gather and sit around as we would, but they would turn it down a wee bit. There would be no boy like me up at the front shouting, no choir singing their hearts out, nothing like that. Instead, they would sit quietly, and the pastor would speak God's word to these believers. And do you know how they would sing? They would break into little groups of five and six, and little huddles around the room. And they would take turns at whispering the psalms into the ear of the person on their right. Simple, yet beautiful worship. Worship that didn't require razzmatazz or images or all the sights and sounds that we are fond of in the West. But worship that reflected the simplicity of our God who says, Do not imagine me. Do not carve me. Do not paint me. Do not set up an idol in the house or in your church or in your heart. For I am God and there is none like me. And so my brothers and sisters today, you and I are men and women who love nothing but idols. May we replace them this hour with the word preached on a supper served 
But may we taste and see that the Lord is still, still very, very good. Amen. And we thank God today for his word. Friends, in a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table. Uh, You are welcome to come to the supper if you know Christ as your Savior. Uh, If you're up in the balcony and you wish to take the supper, then I would ask you in this next hymn uh, to make your way downstairs. That would be very, very good if you could do that. Uh, But please know, friends, today that, that we can make an idol out of this. We can sometimes come to the table believing that by eating and drinking, then that must be doing us good. No. Today we are welcome at this table if we have exercised saving faith, if we have trusted in Christ. And so today, if you do not know Jesus, then I would urge you, do not come to this table, but instead run to Christ. Do not replace him with an idol of your own making. Run to Jesus and be saved.